14. Hey may be full from every consideration for their future well-being. Let them exercise precaution and forbearance, until the wife becomes sufficiently healthy and enduring to bequeath her own vital stamina to the child she bears. From what has been said on this subject, it behooves the prudent husband to weigh well the injurious, nay criminal results which may follow his lust. Let him not endanger the health, and it may be the life, of his loving and confiding wife through a lack of self-denial. Let him altogether refrain, rather than be the means of untold misery and, perhaps, the destruction of the person demanding his most cherished love and protection. On so important a subject, we feel we should commit an unpardonable wrong were we not to speak thus plainly and openly. An opportunity has been afforded us, which it would be reprehensible to neglect. We shall indeed feel we have been amply rewarded, if these suggestive remarks of ours tend in any way to remove or alleviate the sufferings of an uncomplaining and loving wife. Our sympathies, always susceptible to the conditions of sorrow and suffering, have been enlisted to give faithfully, explicitly, and plainly, warnings of danger and exhortations to prudence and nothing remains for us but to maintain the principles of morality and leave to the disposal of a wise and overruling providence the mystery of all seemingly untoward events, in every condition of life, evils arise, and most of those which are encountered are avoidable, humanity should be held accountable for those evils which it might, but does not shun, by a statute of the national government, prevention of pregnancy is considered a punishable offense, whereas every physician is instructed by our standard writers and lecturers on this subject that not only prevention is necessary in many instances, but even abortion must sometimes be produced in order to save the mother's life. As we view the matter, the law of the national government asserts the ruling principle, and the exceptions to it must be well established by evidence. In order to fully justify such procedure, the family physician may, with the concurrence of other medical counselors, be justified, in rare cases, in advising means for the prevention of conception but he should exercise this professional duty only when the responsibility is shared by other members of the profession, and the circumstances fully and clearly warrant such a practice. After fecundation, the length of time before conception takes place is variously estimated. Should impregnation occur at the ovary or within the fallopian tubes, usually about a week elapses before the fertilized germ enters the uterus so that ordinarily the interval between the act of insemination and that of conception varies from 8 to 14 days. Double conception. If two germs be evolved simultaneously, each may be impregnated by spermatozoa, and a twin pregnancy be the result. This is by no means a rare occurrence. It is very unusual, however, to have one birth followed by another after an interval of three or four months, and each day present the evidences of full maturity. Perhaps such occurrences may be accounted for on the supposition that the same interval of time elapses between the impregnation of the two germs as there is difference observed in their birth, that after the act of insemination, sperm was carried to each ovary, that one hand matured a germ ready for fecundation, then impregnation and conception immediately followed, and the decidua of the uterus hermetically sealed both fallopian tubes, and thus securely retained the sperm within the other fallopian canal. The stimulus of the sperm so pent up causes that ovary to mature a germ, although it may do so slowly, and after two or three months it is perfected, fertilized, and a second conception occurs within the uterus. If each embryo observe a regular period of growth and each be born at maturity, there must be an interval of two or three months between their births, but it is far more common for the parturition of the first, displaying signs of full maturity, 
to coincide with the birth of a second which is immature and which cannot sustain respiratory life. The birth of the latter is brought about prematurely, by the action of the uterus in expelling the mature child, uterine pregnancy. There are many who manifest a laudable desire to understand the physiology of conception, the changes which take place, and the order of their natural occurrence. When impregnation takes place at the ovaries or within the fallopian tubes, there is exuded upon the inner surface of the womb a peculiar nutritious substance. It flows out of the minute porous openings surrounding the termination of the fallopian tube within the uterine cavity, and, thus, is in readiness to receive the germ, and retain it there until it becomes attached. Undoubtedly, the germ imbibes materials from this matter for its nurture and growth. This membranous substance is termed the decidua, and disappears after conception is ensured. Two membranes form around the embryo, the inner one is called the amnion, the outer one the chorion. Both serve for the protection of the embryo, and the inner one contains the liquor MDI, in which it floats during intrauterine life. Immediately after conception, the small glands in the neck of the uterus usually throw out a sticky secretion, filling the canal, or uniting its sides, so that nothing can enter or leave the uterine cavity. The fertilized ovum rapidly develops. After its conception it imbibes nourishment, and there is a disposition in fluids to pass into it through its delicately organized membranes, if this process is not involuntary, it island at all events, at the convenience and use of the developing germ, after three months the embryo is termed the fetus, its fluids are then so much more highly organized, that some of them are tinged with sanguine hues, and thenceforward acquire the characteristics of red blood, out of red blood, blood vessels are formed, and from the incipient development of the heart follow faint lines of arteries, and the engineers of nutrition survey a circulatory system, perfecting the vascular connections by supplementing the arteries with a complete network of veins and capillaries. The placenta or afterbirth, whenever conception occurs, a soft, spongy substance is formed between the uterus and the growing ovum, called the placenta. It is composed of membrane, cellular tissue, blood vessels, and connecting filaments. The principal use of this organ seems to be to decarbonate the blood of the fetus and to supply it with oxygen. It performs the same function for the fetus that the lungs do for the organism after birth. It allows the blood of the fetus to come into very close contact with that of the mother, from which it receives a supply of oxygen, and to which it gives up carbonic acid. This interchange of gases takes place in the placenta, or between it and the uterus, through the intervening membranes. This decarbonating function requires the agency of the maternal lungs, for the purpose of oxygenating the mother's blood, the placenta is attached to the uterus by simple adhesion. True, in some instances, morbid adhesion takes place, or a growing together in consequence of inflammation, but the natural junction is one merely of contact, the membranes of the placenta spreading out upon the cavity of the uterus, so that, finally, the former may be entirely removed without a particle of disturbance or injury to the latter. Formerly, it was supposed that the placental vessels penetrated into the substance of the uterus. We know now there is no such continuation of the vessels of the one into the other. The decarbonation of the blood requires the placental and uterine membranes to be in contact with each other. If the union were vascular, the mother's blood would circulate in the fetal body, and the impulses of the maternal heart might prove too strong for the delicate organism of the embryo. Besides, the separation of the placenta from the uterus might prove fatal to both parent and offspring. The placenta is only a temporary organ, and when its functions are no longer required, it is easily and safely removed. The umbilical cord, 
the fetal blood is transmitted to and fro between the body of the child and the placenta, by a cord which contains two arteries and one vein. This is called the umbilical cord, because it enters the body at the middle of the abdominal region, or umbilicus. It is composed, also, of its own proper membranous sheath, or skin, and cellular tissues, besides the blood vessels. Two months after pregnancy, this cord can be seen, when it commences to grow rapidly, quickening, not until the mother feels motion is she said to be quick with child, that island the child must be old and strong enough to communicate a physical impulse, which the mother can distinctly perceive, before it is regarded as having received life, this is a fallacy, for the germ has to be endowed with life before organization can begin, the act of impregnation communicates the vital principle, and from that moment it starts upon its career of development. A long period elapses after this occurs before it can make the mother feel its motions, before quickening. The attempt to destroy the fetus is not considered so grave a crime by our laws, but after this quickening takes place, it is deemed a felony. The right to terminate pregnancy, the expediency and the moral right to prematurely terminate pregnancy must be admitted when weighty and sufficient reasons for it exist. Such a course should never be undertaken. However, without the advice and approval of the family physician, and, whenever it is possible, the counsel of another medical practitioner should be obtained. There may be so great a malformation of the pelvic bones as to preclude delivery at full term, or, as in some instances, the pregnant condition may endanger the life of the mother, because she is not able to retain nourishment upon the stomach. In such cases only, is interference warranted, and even then the advice of some well-informed physician should be first obtained to make sure that the life of the mother is endangered before so extreme a measure is resorted to. Those who are qualified for maternal duties should not undertake to defeat the intentions of nature, simply because they love ease and dislike responsibility. Such persons may be considered genteel ladies, but, practically, they are indifferent to the claims of society and posterity. How such selfishness contrasts with the glorious, heroic, Spartan spirit of the young woman who consulted us in reference to the acceptance of a tempting offer of marriage. She was below medium size and delicately organized. She hesitated in her answer, because she was uncertain as to her duty to herself, and to her proposed husband, and on account of the prospective contingencies of matrimony. After she was told that it was doubtful whether she could discharge the obligations of maternity with safety to herself and yet that she might prove to her intended husband a true and valuable wife. She quickly answered, her black eyes radiant with the high purpose of her soul, if I assent to this offer, I shall accept the condition and its consequences also, even if pregnancy be my lot and I know it will cost me my life. She acceded to the proposal, and years found them one in happiness, then a daughter was born, but the bearing and nursing were too much for her delicate constitution and she continued to sink until she found rest in the grave. Of all her beautiful and noble sayings, none reflect more moral grandeur of spirit than the one in which she expressed her purpose to prove true to posterity. The signs of pregnancy, the symptoms which indicate pregnancy are cessation of the menses, enlargement of the mammy, nausea, especially in the morning, distention of the abdomen, and movement of the fetus. A married woman has reason to suspect that she may have conceived, when, at the proper time, she fails to menstruate, especially when she knows that she is liable to become pregnant. A second menstrual failure strengthens this suspicion, although there are many other causes which might prevent the appearance of the menses, such as disease of the uterus, general debility, or taking cold. 
and all of these should be taken into account, in the absence of all apparent influences calculated to obstruct the menses. The presumption ordinarily is that pregnancy is the cause of their non-appearance. The evidence is still more conclusive when the mammy and abdomen enlarge after experiencing morning sickness. Notwithstanding all these symptoms, the audible sound of the heart, or the movements of the fetus, are the only infallible signs of a pregnant condition. The duration of pregnancy. The ordinary duration of pregnancy is about 40 weeks, or 280 days. It is difficult to foretell exactly when a pregnancy will be completed, for it cannot be known precisely when it began. Some gestations are more protracted than others, but the average duration is the time we have given. A very reasonable way to compute the term, is to reckon three months back from the day when the menses ceased and then add five days to that time, which will be the date of the expected time of confinement. It is customary, also, for women to count from the middle of the month after the last appearance of the menses, and then allow ten lunar months for the term. This computation generally proves correct, except in those instances in which conception takes place immediately before the fast appearance of the catamenia. A few women can forecast the time of labor from the occurrence of quickening, by allowing 18 weeks for the time which has elapsed since conception, and 22 more for the time yet to elapse before the confinement with those in whom quickening occurs regularly in a certain week of pregnancy. This calculation may prove nearly correct. The English law fixes no precise limit for the legitimacy of the child. In France a child is regarded as lawfully begotten if born within 300 days after the death or departure of the husband. There are a sufficient number of cases on record to show that gestation may be prolonged to, and even three, weeks beyond the ordinary, or average term. The variation of time may be thus accounted for. After insemination, a considerable interval elapses before fecundation takes place, and the passage of the fertilized germ from the ovary to the uterus is also liable to be retarded. There are many circumstances and conditions which might serve to diminish its ordinary rate of progress, and postpone the date of conception. This would materially lengthen the apparent time of gestation. It is likewise difficult to determine the shortest period at which gestation may terminate, and the child be able to survive. A child may be born and continue to live for some months. After 24 or 25 weeks of gestation, it was so decided, at least, in an ecclesiastical trial. We have not the space to describe minutely, or at length, the formation and growth of the fetal structures, and trace them separately from their origin to their completion at the birth of the child. The student of medicine must gain information by consulting large works and exhaustive treatises on this interesting subject. What trifling contingencies defeat vitality? Conception may be prevented by acrid secretions, the result of disease of the reproductive organs. Leucoreal matter may destroy the vitalizing power of the sperm cells. There are many ways, even after impregnation, of compromising the existence of the frail embryo. Accidents, injuries, falls, blows, acute diseases, insufficient nutrition and development. In fact, A great variety of occurrences may destroy the life of the embryo, or fetus, after birth. Numerous diseases menace the child, by what constant care must it ever be surrounded, and how often is it snatched from the very jaws of death? What, then, is man but simply a germ, evolving higher powers, and destined for a purer and nobler existence? His latent life secretly emerges from mysterious obscurity, is incarnated and born upon the flowing stream of time to a spiritual destination to realms of immortality, as he nears those ever-blooming shores, the Isle Faith, 
illuminated by the inspired word, dimly discerns the perennial glories, quickened by faith, hope, and love, his spirit is transplanted into the garden of paradise, the Eden of happiness, redeemed, perfected, and made glorious in the divine image of him who hath said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, part I, I hygiene, chapter I hygiene defined, pure air, the object of hygiene is the preservation of health, hitherto, we have considered, at some length, the science of functions, or physiology, and now, under the head of hygiene, we will give an outline of the means of maintaining the functional integrity of the system, it is difficult to avoid including under this head preventive medicine, the special province of which is to abate, remove, or destroy the many causes of disease, the Greeks bestowed divine honors upon the Aesculapes, because he remedied the evils of mankind and healed the sick, the word hygiene is derived from hygia, the name of the Greek goddess of health, as male and female are made one in wedlock, so medicine and hygiene, restoration and preservation, are inseparably united, hygiene inculcates sanitary discipline, medicine, remedial discipline, hygiene prescribes healthful agencies, medical theory and practice, medicinal agencies, hygiene ministers with salubrious and salutary agents, medicine assuages with rectifying properties and qualities, hygiene upholds and sustains, medical practice corrects and heals, the one is preservative and conservative, the other curative and restorative, these discriminations are as radical as health and sickness, as distinct as physiology and pathology, and to confound them is as unnatural as to look for the beauties of health in the chamber of sickness, the true physician brings to his aid physiology, hygiene, and medicine, and combines the science of the former with the art of the latter, that restoration may be made permanent, and the health preserved by the aid of hygiene, but when anyone makes hygiene exclusively the physician, or deals wholly in hygienic regulations with little respect for physiology, or lavishly advertises with hygienic prefixes, we may at once consider it a display, not of genuine scientific knowledge, but only of the ignorance of a quack. Some of the modern twaddle about health is a conglomeration of the poorest kind of trash, expressing and inculcating more errors and whims than it does common sense. Many persons dilate upon these subjects with amazing flippancy, their mission seeming to be to traduce the profession rather than to act as helpmates and assistants. We do not believe that there is any real argument going on between the educated members of the medical profession but rather that the senseless clamor we occasionally hear comes only from the stampede of some rooted, demoralized company of quacks. In the following pages we shall introduce to the reader's attention several important hygienic subjects, although there are many more that ought to receive special notice, such as we do mention, demand universal attention, because a disregard of the conditions which we shall enumerate is fraught with great danger, our lives are lengthened or shortened by the observance or neglect of the rules of common sense, and these do not require any great personal sacrifice, or the practice of absurd precautions, pure air for respiration, ordinary atmospheric air contains nearly 2.100 parts of oxygen and 7.900 of nitrogen, and about 3 parts of carbonic acid, in 10.000 parts, Expired air contains about 470 parts of carbonic acid, and only between 1500 and 1600 parts of oxygen, while the quantity of nitrogen undergoes little or no alteration. Thus air which has been breathed has lost about 5% of oxygen and has gained nearly 5% of carbonic acid. In addition the expired air contains a greater or less quantity of highly decomposable animal matter, 
and, however dry the atmospheric air may be, the expired air is always saturated with watery vapor, and, no matter what the temperature of the external air may be, that of the exhaled air is always nearly as warm as the blood. An adult man on an average breathes about 16 times in a minute and at every inspiration takes in about 30 cubic inches of air, and at every expiration exhales about the same amount. Hence, it follows that about 16 to 3 cubic feet of air are passed through the lungs of an adult man every hour, and deprived of oxygen and charged with carbonic acid to the amount of nearly 5%. The more nearly the composition of the external air approaches that of the expired air, the slower will be the diffusion of carbonic acid outwards and of oxygen inwards, and the more charged with carbonic acid and deficient in oxygen will the blood in the lungs become. Asphyxia takes place whenever the proportion of carbonic acid in the external air reaches 10%, providing the oxygen is diminished in like proportion, and it does not matter whether this condition of the external air is produced by shutting out fresh air from a room or by increasing the number of persons who are consuming the same air, or by permitting the air to be deprived of oxygen by combustion by a fire, a deficiency of oxygen and an accumulation of carbonic acid in the atmosphere, produce injurious effects. However, long before the asphyxiating point is attained, headache, drowsiness, and anesthesia occur when less than 1% of the oxygen of the atmosphere is replaced by other matters, and the constant breathing of such an atmosphere lowers vitality and predisposes to disease. Therefore, every human being should be supplied, by proper ventilation, with a sufficient supply of fresh air. Every adult individual ought to have at least 800 cubic feet of air space to himself and the space ought to communicate freely with the external atmosphere by means of direct or indirect channels. Hence, a sleeping room for one adult person should not be less than 9 by 10 feet in breadth and length and 9 feet in height. What occurred in the black hole at Calcutta is an excellent illustration of the effect of vitiated air. 146 Englishmen were confined in a room 18 feet square, with two small windows on one side to admit air. 10 hours after their imprisonment, only 23 were alive. Ventilation of schoolrooms, the depression and faintness from which many students suffer, after being confined in a poorly ventilated schoolroom, is clearly traceable to vitiated air. While the evil is often ascribed to excessive mental exertion, the effect of ventilation upon the health of students is a subject of universal interest to parents and educators, and at present is receiving the marked attention of school authorities. Dr. F. Windsor, of Winchester, Mass made a few pertinent remarks upon the subject in the annual report of the State Board of Health, of Massachusetts, 1874, one of the institutions, which was spoken of in the report of 1873, as a model, in the warming and ventilation of which much care had been bestowed, was visited in December, 1873, he reports as follows, I visited several of the rooms, and found the air in hall, offensive to the smell, the odor being such as one would imagine old boots, dirty clothes, and perspiration would make it boiled down together, again, in the new model schoolhouse the hot air enters at two registers in the floor on one side, and makes or is supposed to make its exit by a ventilator at the floor, on the other side of the room, the master said, the air was supposed to have some degree of intelligence, and to know that the ventilator was its proper exit, thorough ventilation has been neglected by many school officials on account of the increased expense it causes, in our climate, during seven months at least, pure atmospheric air must be paid for, the construction of vertical ducts, the extra amount of fuel, and the attendant expenditures are the objections which, 
in the opinion of many persons, outweigh the health and happiness of the future generation. It is necessary for the proper ventilation of our schoolrooms that an adequate supply of fresh air should be admitted, which should be warmed before being admitted to the room, and which should be discharged as contaminated. After its expiration, the proper ventilation of the schoolroom consists in the warming and introduction of fresh air from without, and the discharge of the expired and unwholesome air from within. This may be accomplished by means of doors, windows, chimneys, and finally by ventilators placed, one near the level of the floor, and the other near the ceiling of the room. The ventilators ought to be arranged on the opposite sides of the room, in order to ensure a current, and an abundant supply of air. When trustees and patrons realize that pure air is absolutely essential to health, and that their children are being slowly poisoned by the foul air of schoolrooms, then they will construct our halls of learning with a due regard for the laws of hygiene, and students will not droop under their tasks on account of the absence of nature's most bountiful gift, pure air, ventilation of factories and workshops. This is a subject which demands the immediate attention of manufacturers and employers, the odors of oil coal gas, and animal products, render the air foul and stagnant, and often give rise to violent diseases among the operatives. From two to four hundred persons are often confined in workshops six hundred feet long, with no means of ventilation except windows on one side only. The air is breathed and re-breathed, until the operatives complain of languor and headache, which they attribute to overwork. The real cause of the headache is the inhalation of foul air at every expansion of the lungs. If the proprietors would provide efficient means for ventilating their workshops, the cost of construction would be repaid with compound interest, in the better health of their operatives and the consequent increase of labor. Our manufacturers must learn and practice the great principle of political economy, namely, that the interests of the laborer and employer are mutual. Ventilation of our dwellings, not less important is the ventilation of our dwellings, Each apartment should be provided with some channel for the escape of the noxious vapors constantly accumulating. Most of the tenements occupied by the poor of our cities are literally dens of poison. Their children inhale disease with their earliest breath. What wonder that our streets are filled with squalid, want-visaged children. Charity, indeed, visits these miserable homes, bringing garments and food to their half-famished inmates, but she has been slow to learn that fresh air is just as essential to a life as food or clothing. Care should be taken by the public authorities of every city, that its tenement houses do not degenerate into foul hovels, like those of the poor English laborer, so graphically portrayed by Dickens. But ill-ventilated rooms are not found exclusively in the abodes of the poor. True, in the homes of luxury, the effect of vitiated air is modified by food, etc. Men of wealth give far more attention to the architecture and adornment of their houses, to costly decorations and expensive furniture than to proper ventilation. Farmers, too, are careless in the construction of their cottages. Their dwellings are often built, for convenience, into close proximity to the barn, because they do not construct a suitable sewer or drain. The filth and refuse food is thrown out of the back door, where it accumulates and undergoes putrefaction, the vitiated air penetrates the interior of the house, and, there being no means of ventilation, it remains to be breathed by the occupants. The result island that for the sake of saving a few dollars, which ought to be expended in the construction of necessary flues and sewers, the farmer often sees the child he prizes far more than his broad acres gradually decline, or suddenly fall a victim to fevers or malignant disease. Parents, make your homes healthy, let in the pure, fresh air and bright sunlight, 
so that your conscience may never upbraid you with being neglectful of the health and lives of your little ones. Site for homes. Malaria. When about to construct our residences, besides securing proper ventilation and adequate drainage, we ought to select the location for a home on dry soil, low levels, damp surroundings, and marshy localities not only breed malaria and fevers, but are a prolific cause of colds, coughs, and consumption. Care should be taken not to locate a dwelling where the natural currents of air, or high winds, will be likely to bring the poison of decayed vegetable matter from low lands, certain brooks, boggy land, ponds, foggy localities, too much shade, all these are favorable to the development of disease. Then the walls of a building should be so constructed as to admit air between the exterior and interior surfaces, otherwise the interior of the house will be damp and unwholesome. In the dead of winter in northern latitudes the house ought to be kept slightly tempered with warmth, both night and day, a condition very favorable to the introduction and change of atmospheric currents. The invigorating tendencies of a dry, pure atmosphere are remarkably beneficial, while air charged with moisture and decay is exceedingly baneful. Introducing diseases under various forms, neither should the dwelling be shaded by dense foliage. The dampness of the leaves tends to attract malaria. Trees growing a little distance from the house, however, obstruct the transmission of unhealthy vapors arising beyond them. Malaria generally lurks near the surface of the earth, and seems to be more abundant in the night time. Persons sleeping in the upper story of a house may escape its morbid influence, while those occupying apartments on the lower floor become affected. Damp cellars, damp cellars, under residences, are a fruitful cause of disease. Dr. Sanford B. Hunt in an article in the New York Daily Advertiser, speaking of the recent epidemic of diphtheria in New York City, says, pestilences that come bodily, like cholera, are faced and beaten by sanitary measures, those which come more simply need for their defeat only a higher detective ability and a closer study of causes, many of which are known, but hidden under the cellars of our houses, and which at last are only preventable by public authority and at public expense in letting out the imprisoned dampness which saturates the earth on which our dwellings are built, where wood rots, men decay. This is clearly shown in the sanitary map printed in the Times, in the great district surrounding.